Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19, Genesis chapter 19. Uh, for those of you who were here uh, last week, I just want to give uh, one, uh, one point of clarification. I was uh, really focused yesterday or last week on hitting the nail hard and, and, and repeatedly hitting the nail that only Jesus is righteous and that we can only be saved through Jesus' righteousness not our own. And hopefully that came uh, crystal clear as we looked at Genesis chapter 18 and Abraham's prayer, and then we went to Romans and the idea of imputed righteousness. And I also wanted to make it clear, in contrast to Jesus, I wanted to make it clear that Lot did not behave righteously. And I mentioned how in the New Testament it was mentioned that Lot was described as righteous. But I think in trying to hit the nail that Jesus is only righteous, I was also hitting the nail that Lot is, did not behave righteously, but I think I said a number of times that Lot was not righteous. And so I don't want to go on record uh, contradicting the New Testament, okay? I don't want to disagree with the Apostle Peter writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And so I just want to, I just want to clarify that, uh, that Lot is indeed described as righteous uh, in, in the New Testament. And let's go right to that passage in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, Peter writing, talking about God, if he rescued righteous Lot, righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and that he heard. Three different times, Lot is called righteous. But Lot did not behave righteously. And if we've been reading and listening to the book of Genesis closely, this isn't Super surprising to us because uh, Abraham is called righteous and Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness in Genesis chapter 15 and Lot is called righteous. And as, as we, we hear that Noah is righteous and he followed God, he built the ark, but then he grew some grapes and he, uh, and he fermented some, some wine and he got drunk. And then Abraham... Uh, trusted God and he followed God. He left his, his land and his kindred and his country and he believed God's promises, but he lied about his wife Sarah, put his wife Sarah into the arms of another man twice. And then he took in his arms another woman, Hagar. He did not, he was called righteous, but he did not always act righteously. And then there's Lot. And, and to be honest, Lot is Called righteous, but he behaves more unrighteous than any of these other righteous ones who act unrighteously. He offers his daughters to this uh, lust-filled, uh, angry mob in the street. He also gets drunk. And the thing that's unique about Lot, I mean, with Noah, God said, build an ark, and Noah did it. And with Abraham, God said, leave your country and go to the land that I show you. And Abraham did it. With Lot, God kept saying, get out of Sodom, get out of Sodom. And Lot refused to do it. So Lot is really messed up. And Lot is a troubling character in God's word. But Lot, Lot is described as, as righteous. 
But there's a key in Peter's words. In, in, in his letter, he says that righteous man lived among them day after day. It says that he was tormenting his righteous soul. Who was doing the tormenting? Was it the people of Sodom that were tormenting Lot? No, no, no. Lot himself was bringing this torment, was bringing this, this disaster on himself. He knew right from wrong. He knew how he ought to live, and yet he chose to continue to live, not just in, but according to the values of the people of Sodom. Lot is a complicated character because he's so compromised. Because he is, he, has, he is clinging to the ways of this world. Lot has, as we sung about earlier today, Lot had one foot on the solid rock of Jesus, but just there were some things over here on the sinking sand that really appealed to him. And he was trying to create this impossible balance of having one foot on the rock and the other on the sinking sand. And for Lot, everything was going well for him. He was living in this prosperous city. A city, because he was a righteous man, a city that should have hated him and kicked him out. But he had created this sort of house of cards. This uneasy, fragile peace. Where he had somehow thought that he had created this perfect balance between benefiting materially and socially from living in Sodom on the sinking sand, but also thinking that he was separate from the culture. Loved ones, the the truth is, is that we often torment our own souls. And that in looking at Lot... We're kind of looking in the mirror. And for Lot, everything was going fine until these angels showed up. Until messengers from God who brought truth and righteousness and holiness. And then everything falls apart for Lot. He starts opening his mouth and the things that he says, they make no sense. He starts taking action or delaying action, and it makes no sense. See, here's the thing. You can think you've found some sort of happy compromise between following the Lord and being on the rock and being in the world on the sinking sand. You can think that until God shows up, until truth shows up, until righteousness and holiness shows up, and then the house of cards that you built explodes. And that's what ends up happening with Lot. Lot is a cautionary tale. It warns us that it is unwise and unsafe for righteous people to entangle themselves in the present corrupt culture because that present corrupt culture is destined for divine judgment. It is unwise and unsafe For those who are righteous by faith to entangle themselves in our corrupt culture that is destined for divine judgment. Lot had become comfortable. He had found a way to functionally functionally function in, in a dysfunctional, evil, depraved 
culture. He found a way to fit in and to blend in. And he had created this uneasy peace. The story of Lot is a tragic story. Especially when you consider where it all started. Genesis chapter 13, Lot's along for the ride with his uncle Abraham and he's trusting in God's promises and God promised to bless Abraham and indirectly blesses Lot as well. And so we read that Lot who went with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. This is how it starts with Lot. Abraham, recognizing that he's been blessed, he says, Lot, pick any land that you want. And Lot looks at the land of Sodom and Gomorrah down in the valley. He sees that it's like the Garden of Eden. It's prosperous. It's beautiful. So Lot chooses Sodom. And then as the story unfolds, it says that he camped near Sodom. So he had access to some of the benefits of the culture, but he wasn't living right in the city. But then you get to chapter 14, and he's living right in Sodom. And then you remember that he becomes a prisoner of war. He gets captured by these other kings, and his uncle has to go and rescue him. And did Lot learn his lesson? Maybe I should find another place to raise my family. No, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 19, he's sitting at Sodom's gate. Which means that he is, uh, we can infer there, it was, it was the political leaders, the judicial leaders who sat at the gates of cities to make decisions. Lot had become a leader in this culture. So we need, we need God's help as we study this passage. This, this is God's word, this is truth, this is a warning for us. And, and we're, going to, we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to help us uh, to, to understand this text and, and to apply it to our lives. So let's bow our heads and, and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We come to you filled with the Holy Spirit. We come to you with a passage of scripture open in our laps that is very, very troubling. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us right now. Lord, I pray that you would be with me as I speak, Lord. There are are so many things that need to be said, and they need to be said correctly. And so I pray, God, for grace to be able to say what your word says. Not to add to it and not to take away from it. But to rightly divide it like a workman who has no reason to be ashamed. And God, I, I pray for everyone listening. I pray that you would help us all to listen well. And that we would heed this warning from this passage. So, Lord, we pray for your help and your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The title for today's message is Escape for Your Life, which is what the angels came to tell Lot to do. The Hebrew word for escape is malot, which sounds a lot like lot. And so this is Lot's malot. This is Lot being told to escape. The one whose name sounds like escape is having, is having to 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 wrestle with the reality of the life he had built for himself. He had, in in one way, he had gained the whole world. 
but was at the risk of forfeiting his soul. He was living in prosperity and ease in Sodom. And God told him to escape for his life. Let's pick up the story in chapter 19, verse 1. Then two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No. Well, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. We see our parallel initially in the story of Lot with the story of Abraham. They both show hospitality to these angelic messengers. They both come and bow before them. They both say, please stay and, and, and they both refer to themselves as servants. They both prepare meals for these angels. The only difference is, is that when the angels come to Abraham to deliver the message of the arrival of Isaac to his wife Sarah, it's bright because it's a message of hope. But these angels who come with a message of destruction, they come in the evening. They come when it is dark. And the angels are like, hey, we'll just camp out in the town square. And Lot's like, no, you're not from here. You don't know what this place is like. Please. He pressed them so that they would stay in his house. And that's because of the depravity of Sodom's citizens. If you're taking notes today, there's sort of four headings that I want us to to have in front of us to to follow the the narrative here. It begins with a description of the depravity of Sodom's citizens. Lot's welcome was very different from the welcome given by Lot's neighbors living in Sodom. Verse 4 says, But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. So the house gets surrounded. And the demand made by the crowd is that these men would be brought out of the house so that they could be known. Now, the Bible is not uh, uh, graphically descriptive here, but know is a euphemism for sexual intercourse. Uh, Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, it says that Abraham knew his wife Eve, and the result of that knowing was was the birth of Cain. And so, what these men are planning to do, this is utterly wicked. And also notice that they are described as being young and old. All the people to the last man. So going back to Abraham's prayer, are there 50 righteous? Are there 45? Are there, are there 30, 20, 10? They're, they're young and old to the very last man. Could it be any more clear? The whole city is bent on this act of depravity. Verse 6, so Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him. Lot, here, 
seems quite courageous. He's trying to put himself in between his house guests and this evil, angry mob. He tells them in verse 7, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Lot seems to, to have some sort of a moral compass. He seems to know that what these men want to do is, is utterly wicked. He can't allow it to happen. But then as it so often happens, when, when truth and holiness and righteousness shows up at our house, and we haven't been living according to truth and we've been living unrighteously and we haven't been living holy and we start to open our mouths and, 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 and when our logic gets pushed to the very end, we start saying some really terrible things that don't make any sense. And what Lot says next doesn't make any sense. What Lot says next is despicable and really unthinkable. He says in verse 8, Behold, I... I have two daughters who have not known any man. Again, we understand what known means. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Lot seems to have some sort of moral compass in that he recognized that what the men around him wanted to do was wicked, but the, the compass is, is, is broken. It, it's not working right. His conscience is seared. His soul has been tormented for so long. He has become so influenced by the culture. How, how could any father make that kind of a suggestion? I mean, at the nine o'clock service, I'm trying to talk about the, about the story, and here's Darren, with, who just had his, his beautiful little daughter, Haven, and he's on the platform with his wife, Mary, and his other daughter, Kira. It's absolutely unthinkable that fathers and husbands do Anything and everything to protect their children, particularly their daughters. And yet, Lot, to protect his guests and to cowardly protect himself, makes this proposal. It's, it's absolutely reprehensible and repugnant. It is, it is so difficult even to fathom. Do you imagine his daughters overhearing what he's saying? How could he say it? Well, we have a little clue when he first addresses them back in verse 7. He calls them brothers. This, this was what happened in Sodom every day. This kind of behavior, this kind of sexual deviance, this kind of immorality. And Lot had been living in this culture. And I'm sure Lot had lots of nuanced reasons. It could use lots of sociological terms and, and cultural buzzwords to explain why he was saying what he was saying. But it was awful. It was it's disgusting. It's inexcusable. It's unimaginable. 
But Lot had been living in that culture for so long. And there are some things for us. There are some things that we tolerate or that we talk about as Christians living where we do. That if you were to transplant us and if we were to say some of the things that we say or think some of the things that we think, if you were to go to another part of the world and and say that to Christians living somewhere else or go to another period in history and say those same things, they would be absolutely scandalized. But because of the culture in which we live, we are all breathing polluted air. And and some of us have come to this comfortable compromise with, I'm a Christian, but I'm I'm living in the world, and I'm, I'm really truthfully, I'm of the world. And this is how Lot was living, and it all falls apart for him here. He's been living in Sodom, and so he thinks like a a citizen of Sodom. His moral compass is broken. He's, He's trying to fulfill the virtue of hospitality and looking after strangers, but he's completely forgotten the virtue of fathers are supposed to protect their children. And when when true holiness and righteousness is, is to be lived out, you don't have to pit one virtue against another. You, you are able to, to fulfill all of those things. Lot should have protected his daughters and his guests. But he sees the citizens of Sodom as his brothers. How do they see him? Look at verse 9. But they said, stand back. They said, this fellow who came to sojourn. He's not a brother. He's a fellow. He's just a guy. Sojourn means a temporary resident. Lot had built a house there. He'd been living there for years. He's raising his family there. He considers the citizens of Sodom his brothers, his family. This is what part of his identity. He lives in this luxurious, prosperous city. Brothers, don't do this wicked thing. Brother, you're, just, you're a fellow. You're just a guy. You're not one of us. You're just a sojourner. You're a stranger. You're a foreigner. So they, they verbally attack him. They say, and this fellow has come to sojourn and he's become our judge. When a culture gets so decadent and so depraved, the only remaining sin is the sin of judgment. The only thing you can actually do, the only thing that can anger the culture is for one person to say that someone else is doing something wrong. That's that's the only sin in a culture that's given over to sin. How, who are you to judge, they say. Then they tell him, now we will deal worse with you than with them. They pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Here's Lot thinking that he needs to keep the angels safe. And he needs to keep the angels safe inside the city. Meanwhile, it's not about Lot keeping the angels safe inside the city. It's about the angels keeping Lot safe and getting him out of the city. Lot has the whole thing backwards. 
Again, obviously Lot didn't recognize that these were angels at this point because Lot's trying to manage things on his own. Oh, don't don't worry. You guys stay in here. I I know how this culture works. I've been living here for a long time. Yeah, exactly, Lot. That's why you're the worst person to be mediating this conversation right now because you're so corrupted. You're so influenced. Verse 11 says, they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping at the door. So the angels perform this miracle. They get Lot inside. They shut the door. They strike the crowd with blindness. But look at, look at the description. They wore themselves out groping at the door. They were so desperate for their sexual lusts to be gratified that even divine intervention didn't, cause, didn't give them any pause to second guess their lifestyle choice. They're, they're, they're set on having their sexual desires gratified. All, all of a sudden, they can't see. And everyone else can't see. And yet no one stops. No one thinks, maybe we should rethink what we're doing here. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's something about these angels. Maybe we should listen to what they say. No, they, they are so consumed with lust. They are so bent on having their sexual desires fulfilled that they continue, they wear themselves out groping at the door. This is the, de- the depravity of Sodom's citizens. What was the sin of Sodom. We, 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 can, we can get a, a fuller picture by uh, looking at how Sodom is referenced and referred to in other passages of Scripture. Exodus chapter 16, for instance, in verse 49 and uh, 50. Uh, Exodus 15 or 16. It says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Ezekiel is contrasting the sin of the city of Jerusalem with the sin of Sodom. He says, uh, She and her daughters had pride excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Now, some Bible teachers will just stop at verse 49 and they'll say, this was the real problem. This is why the fire and the brimstone came down. It's because they had pride and excess of food. They were prosperous. And that was all true. It was the, the city of Sodom was like the Garden of Eden. They were very prosperous. They were very affluent. And, and, and they didn't help the poor. All of that is true. But Genesis chapter 19 tells us that there was sexual sin in the city. And so does Ezekiel. Because Ezekiel verse 50, chapter 16 verse 60 says, They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Abomination. Uh, the, the Hebrew word there appears 112 times uh, in the Old Testament. Every time that it appears, it always, it always describes one of two things. One, idolatry in, the, in a, a temple sacrifice type of a way. Or sexual immorality. Abomination never describes things like prosperity or not caring for the poor or the needy. It, it either describes idolatry as it relates to temple worship, or sexual sin. 
Ezekiel 16, the abomination, notice what it says, I removed them, how did God remove them? With fire and brimstone, when I saw it, how did God see it? Remember chapter 18, God said, I've heard an outcry and I'm going down to see. And what did the angels see? They saw rampant sexual immorality. So Ezekiel chapter 16 gives us a fuller picture and so often that when a society becomes affluent and when there's immense prosperity and when there is a focus on the self and personal fulfillment for the self that that oftentimes follows rampant sexual immorality and contrary to God's plan and design. Again, we looked at 2 Peter uh, earlier uh, in the message, but let's go back to that verse. Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. It was sexual immorality. And then the book of Jude in verse 7 says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. What was the unnatural desire that was being pursued? These were men who were wanting to know other men. Our church holds to a biblical perspective on sexuality on our website and in our doctrinal statement. We want to make it clear. We believe that it's loving to be clear. And this is our statement on marriage and sexuality. I'll just read this part at the bottom. God designed sexual intimacy to be expressed and consummated only between a man and a woman when they are united as one flesh in marriage. Now we want to be clear We want to be clear that all are welcome to come and to hear the message of Jesus. All are welcome to come and hear the message of Jesus. And all are welcome and invited to come and follow Jesus. But in following Jesus, there is a cost. And everyone who chooses to follow Jesus must count the cost. And for some who choose to follow Jesus, they, part of counting the cost for them is to leave behind a lifestyle of acting on particular sexual desires. And this has been the, the, the teaching of the church for centuries. And we are merely teaching what God's word says. And people have counted the cost. And people have found that Jesus is the treasure of great price. And whatever we have to to sell in order to acquire the the treasure is worth it. We, We follow him without turning back because he is our treasure. And Paul writing to the, to the city of, of Corinth and the Christians who were living there. And Corinth looked more like Sodom than, than any other place. And, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 to 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 to 11. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice that whenever, and this is true uh, across the New Testament, whenever the sin of homosexual practice is mentioned, it is always mentioned in the context of a list. It's not one sin that is supposed to be centered out among others. And it is, the, it is the practice. We can't always control what desires come into our mind. It's acting on those desires. And it says, it says and such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you found the pearl of great price. You sold all of that. You left all of that behind. You counted the cost and looked at how much Jesus was worth. And you've chosen to follow him. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the spirit of our God. There was utter depravity in Sodom. But not depravity that is beyond the reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to come and to bear the wrath of God that all of us deserve. And Jesus came and said, come and follow me, but take up your cross. He said, die to yourself daily and follow me. All are invited to come and hear the message of Jesus. But following Jesus comes at a cost. But Lot was living in this culture where this sort of thing was normal. And rather than influencing the culture around him, Lot had become influenced himself. That is why it is so unwise and unsafe for the righteous to entangle themselves to the present and corrupt culture. And we we begin to see how influenced Lot was. So we, 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 see the, we see the depravity of Sodom's citizens, and then we see the, the confusing delaying by Lot, that we have this miraculous rescue to get Lot back into the house, and then you would think at this point, okay, the angels are in charge, all right? I'm just going to do what they say from now on. So the angels tell Lot in verse 12, The men said to Lot, have you anyone here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because of the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to only be jesting. Lot had become so compromised that his words had no weight. Lot's ready to get serious. And so he's he's imploring his his sons-in-law, who were, again, if we're we're looking at the text, they were there that night, because every man, young and old, the whole town. And these were people that he had allowed to get engaged to his daughter. Men who practiced this sort of thing. And he goes to them and all they can do is laugh at him because his words have no weight. Because he's been going along with the culture. 
Why, why are you all of a sudden concerned about holiness and righteousness and the judgment of God? I mean, we, 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 we all went out two nights ago. Where, where was your God and where was the judgment? And where, you're, you're, this, this makes no sense. They thought he was only laughing. The theme of laughter weaves its way through the story. You have a, uh, Abraham in chapter 17. When he hears that Sarah is the one who's going to have the baby, he laughs. Then when Sarah finds out in Genesis chapter 18, she laughs. So Abraham and Sarah laugh at the blessing of God and Lot's son-in-laws here are laughing at the judgment of God. That God's ways are so far beyond what we ask or imagine that we, we can laugh in, in disbelief. So he goes and tells them they won't listen. Verse 15, at morning dawn, the angels urged Lot saying, up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away with the punishment. But Lot lingered. So Lot told his sons-in-law to go get out of the city, but when the angels tell Lot to go, he won't go. Lot was the kind of righteous person who's fine telling other people what to do and how to live their life, but when the rubber hits the road for them personally, nah, I'm not, you know, I'm just going to, why, why would Lot linger? He's looking around at his nice house. He's looking around at all of his possessions. He's looking around at the ease of city, urban life. He's looking at his lifestyle. He's looking at that foot that is in the sinking sand and saying, I, I think I want to stay here a little bit longer. All the benefits of living in the city. I mean, Lot, look at what happened last night. We're trying to break down your door. Why do you want to stay here? Again, so much of what Lot does and says, it makes no sense. Even if there wasn't a looming judgment, why would he want to stay there in light of what happened last night? But he had become so accustomed to living that way. He was counting the cost and it was too costly for him. But God is too patient and too merciful Verse 16, but he lingered, so the men seized him and his wife and his daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and sent him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. You might have gained the whole world here in Sodom, but don't forfeit your soul. Escape from this wicked place. He said, they say, do not look back. Or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills. Lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them. Oh no my lords. Behold your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills. Lot's like. Okay. Okay. I could do that. I could escape to the hills. Thank you for that suggestion. Uh, I have another suggestion. How about I not do that? And you can almost just picture like the angels like kind of looking side-eye at each other now. Like, can you believe this guy? Like the angels being like, look, Lot. God did not send us here to rescue you out of the city just so that you would end up dying in the hills. Okay? You, he's going to look after you there. But Lot, Lot persists. Lot can't imagine living outside of the comforts of being in a city. 
Verse 20, behold, the city is near enough to flee. Sorry, this city is near enough to flee, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. Again, God being so patient, so merciful, he said to him, behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor, which means, which means litter, little. Five times it says escape, Malot, Malot, Lot, escape. Get out of here, Lot. Escape for your life. Escape to the hills. Escape quickly. And they say in verse 22, I can do nothing until you arrive there. God has a timeline of judgment. But God's timeline of judgment is always subservient to his timeline of mercy. So he has to show mercy to Lot, even though Lot is proving he's so undeserving. But the Lord being merciful to him drags him out. That's the timeline of mercy. And then this counter-proposal negotiation. Okay, okay, fine. Don't go to the hills. Go to Zor. Just get out of here. The timeline of mercy has to be accomplished before the timeline of judgment. Praise God for that. God is not slow in fulfilling his promise, 2 Peter says. But he wants people to be saved. There is a timeline of judgment. But he wants people to be saved. So we have the depravity of Sodom, the delaying by Lot, and then thirdly, the destruction of Sodom. Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. The angel said, Don't, do not look back. We don't know why Lot's wife looked back or how long she looked back. We we don't know anything about Lot's wife. Did she move to Sodom with Lot or was she a Sodomite herself? Was she a citizen of that city and looking back on all that she was leaving behind? She turned into a pillar of salt. Again, we don't know, is this sort of a miraculous judgment of God or is this a result of her being caught up in all of the destruction and uh, and, and devastation? Loved ones, what what we can know from verses 23 and 24 and 25 is that sin will ultimately be judged. There is a timeline of mercy, but there is a timeline of judgment, and that judgment is coming, and God will judge sin. And he warns his people, and sometimes he drags his people out away from danger in order to deliver them from destruction. Then in verse 27, it says, And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, where he had prayed for those very cities. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, And toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. 
And Abraham here knows his, his prayer was not answered. He, pray, he prayed that the city would be spared for the sake of ten righteous, and his prayer was not answered. It wasn't answered how Abraham wanted it answered, but as we keep reading verse 29, and so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God did hear Abraham's prayer. Abraham didn't know it at that, at that moment as he's seeing the smoke rise, as he's seeing the utter destruction and devastation. When Lot left the city that day, it was just a normal day in Sodom. It was just business as usual. It was just a regular day for everyone there. And Jesus gives a similar warning when he talks about the, the coming ultimate judgment. He actually equates it with this story. He says, just as in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And then he says at the very end, one of the shortest verses in the Bible, remember Lot's wife. It is unwise and unsafe for the righteous to get entangled in our corrupt culture because it is destined for divine judgment. It's the destruction of Sodom. And then as the chapter concludes, we have this very strange, another disturbing episode. And I want you to write over the heading of this section, the descendants of Sodom. The descendants of Sodom. Verse 30 says, Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. Again, he wasted all of his time trying to get permission to go to Zor and, and asking that Zor would not be destroyed. He ends up living in the hills anyway. The end of verse 30 says that he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Again, follow the trajectory of Lot's life. Back in chapter 13, he, is, he has so many flocks and herds that there isn't enough room in the fields for him and Abraham. And then he's living in ease in Sodom, surrounded by a, a, a big house, and he's prosperous. And now, he's living in a cave. It's very sobering. Verse 31, and the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Again, euphemism. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the, daughter of Lot became, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. 
which is the father, he is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Lot's daughters were raised in Sodom. And so they thought according to the ethics and the morality of Sodom. What they propose here was probably normal every day. If you look at what happened the night before and how scandalous and evil and wicked that was, that what they're suggesting was probably just everyday daughters did this all the time. Desperate times call for desperate measures. There's, there's no rules as it relates to sexual ethics or to dignity or, or purity within the, within the family. They're not operating, again, not operating with faith. The God who rescued them out of the city before it was destroyed, I mean, surely he'd provide a husband for them. But they're not operating according to faith. They're, they're only living according to sight. And so they do this evil and wicked deed. And, 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 and Lot gets so, so drunk that he doesn't even know the coming in or the going out. And again, Lot's drunkenness, there's so many parallels with the story of the flood. The, the story of the flood begins with the, you know, the sons of God lusting after women. Many people believe those are angels. And then now you have men lusting after angels. Noah and Lot are both called righteous. God shuts the door of the ark to protect Noah. Uh, the angels shut the door of Lot's house to protect Lot. You have rain and raining uh, fire and sulfur. God remembering Noah. God remembering Abraham, these covenant promises. And then you have Noah getting drunk and then something happening with his children that's really sexually uh, dishonoring and wicked. And then you have Lot getting drunk and something sexually uh, distorted and wicked happens. And both of those stories at the end create the origin story for some of the enemies of Israel, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and then all of the descendants of, of Canaan. You see, Sodom lived on. It was perpetuated by the actions of these daughters who were raised in Sodom. Uh, Kent Hughes describes what, what happened so, uh, so succinctly and profoundly. Here's what he says. He says, Lot's folly was this. Though the worldliness of Sodom vexed his righteous soul, he lived as close to the world as he could, hanging on to it for dear life until the bitter end. And the result was that though God judged all of Sodom except Lot and his daughters, Sodom was reborn in their very lives. We see then that it is possible for believing people like us who are truly distressed by the course of this world to live lives that are so profoundly influenced by culture that Sodom is reborn in the lives of those that we love the most. One of these children is named Moab, uh, which means from the father. And that name Moab, again, would have resonated with the original audience that the, remember, Genesis was written to the people of Israel who had been rescued from Egypt and who were heading to the promised land. On their way to the promised land, they encountered the Moabites. And the Moabites thought about a, a military confrontation and they thought, well, that's not going to work. And so they, they tried a spiritual confrontation and hired Balaam and his talking donkey to try to curse Israel and that didn't work. And then what did the Moabites do? They sexually seduced the people of God. 
they, they, Sodom lives on. The, 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 the worldliness, the sensuality, the allure of sexual sin is what the descendants of, of Moab, that was the weapon that they used. And that is a weapon in our culture that is being repeatedly used against us time after time. But as we head into the season of Advent, next Sunday many of us are going to begin our Advent readings and start thinking about Christmas and we're going to open up the Gospel of Matthew and we're going to read Jesus' genealogy and it's going to take us uh, to Abraham at the very beginning and uh, following his line. Can we get Matthew chapter 1 on the screen please? And right there in the genealogy, one of the few women who are mentioned is the name Ruth. And Ruth was from Moab. And Ruth, coming from a culture that was so sexually immoral and really an enemy of the people of Israel, Ruth told his mother-in-law, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. And it doesn't matter what her upbringing is, whether you've been brought up living in Sodom or whether you've been brought up living in Moab or whether you were brought up following God, but you've put your, your foot in the sinking sand and you feel like you're drowning in sin as a result of being compromised in our culture. The story of Ruth gives us a message of hope that she's right there in the genealogy of Jesus, that she was part of God's plan, that she made a decision. I don't want to live in this world. I want to live for God and for his glory. And loved ones, this is what we are called to. We have been given a treasure. And, and, And we need to make sure that nothing else has our attention or our affection, but that we are treasuring Jesus Christ above all. Let's, let, let's bow our heads and, and, and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, who is the treasure, who is the one who bore the wrath of God that all of us deserve. And Lord Jesus, we, we want to treasure you beyond all else. And Lord, we would be foolish We would be foolish like Lot if we did not recognize and acknowledge how much our culture can and does influence us. The things that we hear, the things that we see, the things that we come to tolerate, the things that we come to recognize as normal. God, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ that we would escape for our lives. Lord, that we would leave behind and be able to know the difference between right and wrong and good and evil and holy and profane. So God, we pray that you would help us to do that. And God, I pray for those of us who are like Lot, those of us who have wandered into Sodom, those of us who have left behind the blessings that come from being on the narrow road as hard as it is that we've walked away from your presence and have walked on the broad path that leads to destruction. God, thank you that you come running after us. And Lord, I I pray that we would turn and repent and live for you and treasure you above all else. God, we pray for your help and your grace. Be with us as we sing and respond now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.